0: Good morning. good morning. Actually, good evening for me since I'm nine hours ahead. Oops, a little bit. I am jet lagged. After the service, if I see you, don't tell me I look tired. <laughs> I am tired. I am tired, man. I have this jet lag. Yeah, I was telling somebody it took me three days to get there and two and a half days to get back, and I was there ten days on the top of some other trips. Violins, please. Violins. <laughs> So uh, I'll talk a little bit about that trip later. It was funny this morning as, w- as uh, we were coming here, I was in the car with uh, Laura. I came a little early with them while she was setting up for childcare, And I had Tess. And Tess gets a lot of stories told about her. And so by now you probably know Tess. But she's so good with one-liners I just had to share this with you. So I was saying, Tess, would you mind praying? I said, I- I'm not sure that Dad remembers how to preach and she, it didn't t- even take one second. She goes, Dad, no, I'm pretty confident that you remember how to preach. And I said, really? And she goes, you turn everything into a sermon. <laughs> and I said, uh, what can you say about that? So I said, that was good. That was good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. <clears throat> thank you for the privilege, the absolute privilege to be here. Thank you for the privilege to be able to come together with people who uh, love you, uh, some here may be seeking you, uh, some may have a, just a general awareness of some kind of divine mind and don't really know how that might work out in a real place, in a real time and Lord I just pray for us and thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for Jesus and uh, we thank you for the, uh, this morning, Lord we th- are so grateful. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen. Well, it's uh, it's been really good. I as I had the privilege of being with you the 1st of September, and I gave you just a little bit of an update. I had uh, the opportunity to be with, I was actually on a Dallas trip with a board meeting. Many of you will know uh, Israel College of the Bible. We had a board meeting and a grand opening, which was fantastic, and uh, met with some Lynx fellowships down there. And then I flew to Seattle and had the privilege of staying with Constance and Dan, along with Bob Thompson and met with some of our Seattle folks and then uh, he ushered me down and we went to Salem and we had probably 75 people there at Illahee Country Club, many of which are Church of the Red Door people or online Church of the Red Door people who can't make it down and many of them are not back yet, but uh, they all say hello uh, and it was just a good time. You know, it's, uh, we really are committed to this, this idea of the ambassador program. Which is a re- just a clear recognition that we live in a weird place. We live in a transient place, and people are in and out. And pe- even people who are here are kind of not really here all the time, you know. And they just, and so how do you stay connected? How do you keep that familial sense in which we are all, in one way or another, family? And uh, so we invested disproportionately on our online stuff. Many of you, even when you're away for vacation, said you we get letters and emails and and everything's saying, and we really appreciate the live stream. And I want to tell you again, I said it in the first week in September, but Pastor Paul and uh, Dave and Pastor Dave Seaford and many of these other uh, who filled in, they said our numbers are up this summer. We're up 20 to 25% in terms of numbers over last summer. Uh, our giving's been up, and they've asked me to leave for another two or three months. <laughs> so that we can pay all of our bills. Uh, but you know, no, it just goes to show that we have a thriving family and this is there's only one lead person here and it's Jesus, it really is. And so it's a thrill, it's a thrill to be back and it's a thrill to be with you. And I was a live streamer for a, uh, quite a few weeks and uh, it wasn't a bad experience, it really wasn't a bad experience. So, uh, anyway, I hope it's not a bad experience for you live streamers. Uh, Now, in September, I actually did kind of made a mistake. I don't know if it's a mistake, but I said, I'm going to start a series. And you know, my my series go, I quit calling them series. But I'm going to give you just a little bit of a a recap of where we were so we can kind of move on. Uh, I told Pete, I said, it'd probably take me 45 minutes in the introduction, and then in the last five minutes, I'll get to some new material here. Um, And he goes, we know, we know. Yeah, we know. We're (laughs) quite well aware of that. But if you'll remember, I made a, a, a bold statement here a couple of uh, number of weeks back in September. I made a bold statement that I believe there's a certain point at which our spiritual maturation is stymied unless we can move in some way into our calling, and our calling always involves mission in some way or another, okay? So, we've talked a lot in here about the giftings that the Holy Spirit gives us once we give our lives to the King, and He fills us with His Holy Spirit, and then we all have such a multiplicity of gifts that they can't ever stand in isolation. It necessitates us coming together to form a body. Paul used language like, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And I can promise you my hand cannot say that to my foot. As you'll see, I'm still in tennis shoes, probably will be for a while. And when my foot went bad, my whole body went bad. My whole body was in bed. I was infirmed. And pray that I'll continue to recover from this. And many of you... attest to that man my foot went bad my hand is up here and it gets all the attention and might have a ring on it or this or that but my foot when it went bad so the hand can't say to the foot and so we need each other and as we come together there's an assumption if you will remember we looked at Psalm 96 so if you have your Bible and want to go back let's just revisit that before we press on Psalm 96 a powerful again now this is again for for those of you who are new to your Bible I'm always going to try to give you a time and place of when this was written. This was written a thousand years before the time of Jesus. This was written as one of the, Psalm, the psalmsters, David here, writing this about a, really a future picture of Jesus. Again, as you'll hear me say virtually every week, one of the most compelling, intellectually compelling things about the Bible is that it was written in advance. The history was written in advance. Everything about Jesus from where he would be born and everything else was written in advance and that's compelling to me in the 21st century. So let me just read this really quickly through for you and just pick up on a couple of points and then we'll press on. Uh, Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Now catch this. What? All the earth. That's what we talked about the first week in September. All the earth. So already there is a... A foreshadowing that this is not going to be just about a little Semitic tribe wandering around in the desert that has their God up and uh, juxtaposed to all the other gods. This is no, this is something very different. The whole earth is going to sing to the Lord. Now, the Lord here in Psalm 96 can be sometimes referred to Elohim. Uh, it can be a power, a prince, or even an angel can be referred, and sometimes those can be translated into Lord. But this is not. This is very centrally, the word used here is Yahweh, which was very specific to that Semitic tribe wandering through the desert. This is the God of the Israelites. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not to suggest he wasn't the creator of all things, but he's gonna show himself and prove himself first to a people, and then they are gonna mediate these covenants around the earth, and this is a foreshadowing of that. All the earth. It's powerful. It's powerful to think about so important to me that this was written in advance of Jesus otherwise and I'm going to tell you a little story about a woman that I came across on an island in Spain here uh, not too long ago on uh, this last trip and we had a similar conversation to the one that we're going to have this morning. I'll tell you that story in a minute. It says, proclaim, uh, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. To whom? The entire earth. Tell of his glory among the nations, the goyim, if you will, in Hebrew, or those people that are not Israelites, his wonderful deeds among all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Why do we, why are we fundamentally on mission because great is the Lord and he is worthy to be praised. Not necessarily just for our own salvation, though it certainly includes that. There is one God and he is deserving of all praise. The very the very concept of monotheism, that there is one God and not a plurality of gods, or the very idea that one God exists carries with it the necessary component of of a missionary zeal of a of the great commission because there's one God and everybody is subject to him because everybody's been created by him. And look, if it was just all, oh, well, I have kind of a thought of God and you have a thought of God and that they're all in conflict and we believe in pantheism or whatever it is, that the gods in the rocks and the trees, that there's just kind of a spirit behind it, whether it be Buddhism that doesn't even believe in a, a real God, it's more of a divine power of sorts, Or Hinduism, Uh, Buddhism doesn't even believe in the the ongoing nature of the soul. Hinduism does, believes in an eternal soul. And these are all in conflict. And and yet, so tell the nations all their idolatry. And when they're chasing that, it's just nothing. That's what we looked at in September. You can see that the next part. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now when it says that is not Yahweh, that is Elohim. Elohim. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, they're just worthless, they're not good for anything, they're, they're just guesses at what might be obvious to us that the Creator exists, but they're just speculation. But the Lord made the heavens and splendor and majesty are before Him, strength and beauty are in His sanctuary, Ascribe to Yahweh, not Elohim, not all the gods or a god, describe This God that appeared to Abraham, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name and bring an offering and come into His courts and worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before Him, who? All the earth. That's why I'm on mission. I got tired of watching backswings, I just really did. I still am interested in backswings and golf, for those of you who know, I was a golf pro for many years. Been doing ministry now for 25 years, it was kind of a slow evolution out of golf and into this because, you know, at a certain point, you know, you've looked at enough backswings and the, it's fun and exciting and kind of an adrenaline rush to compete and all that other kind of thing. But at a certain point, there's something that so far surpasses that, the greatness of the cosmic order, the creator of all things. And I got more interested in talking about him than I did about backswings. I just did. And many of you are finding that true, whether that was business for you or whatever it was, you just started to find yourself needing to worship. And in fact, when you did and when you reached out to the greatness of God, uh, then you found that I, you found more fulfillment. And you also knew intuitively that, this was, that there was an eternal nature to worship, as I mentioned to you as we traveled through and we're in Montana, I mean, just the glory of just this national park, I, as I told you a few weeks ago, it just broke my heart to imagine that people would drive through Glacier National Park, up this steep incline, thousands of feet below, and looking at all this creative glory, and boy, did we have a majestic day to do it, and just go, ah, just, isn't, it, isn't it a luck shot that this all came to, came to be? As I worshiped the Lord in driving through and looked at all that, I, I, I benefited, I benefited. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established and will not be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Hmm, we don't like to hear about that. We like to hear about a God that loves us and created us but we don't like the idea of a God of judgment. Why? Because we think somehow we can have Earth 2.0 and everything will be fine. Earth 1.0 is not great. It's in great distress. I don't know if you've seen the news lately or your entire lives. What does Psalmist said? The nations are in an uproar and they always will be. It's just always one catastrophe after another, one mass shooting after another, one horrific tale about abuse or this or that, all these things that just compile to make this I don't want earth 2.0. I want a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what this is saying. Say among the nations that our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reigns. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? It's a powerful thought. So out of this, and I won't finish the last few here, but so there were a few things that I wanted to have takeaway. Number one, it was always the plan to speak to the earth. So this is not just a Jewish God it was always to be given to a nation who could then take it to the nations so the the reason for israel people say why are they the chosen people we always have to ask what and we've talked about this before Chosen for what? And they were chosen to mediate the, the old covenant to themselves, not, the, not to the nations, but mediate the new covenant, which is what we're going to do this morning with communion, right? We're, mediate the new covenant in his blood that everything can be cool with you and God based upon what Jesus did and not based upon what you do, your merit, or what you've worked your way towards. That's the new deal. And it is a great new deal. Roosevelt's was, uh, okay, maybe it got us out of the Great Depression. This is a great deal. And it is the New Deal and that was all talked about before. It was always to center on the Lord's majesty, always, it was always about His His majesty and His glory. Why? Because we function better when He's glorified the most. I am most content when I'm worshiping because I'm satisfied when I'm worshiping. I turn anything less than God and it will run out on me, it will. money good looks, whatever it is, traveling, anything you say, anything you think about, it will run out in time. You will get tired of it. As I've said before, in my 20s, I loved international travel. Oh, this is so fun, and I didn't care. Economy class sitting in the middle seat, didn't care. I was just, oh, I'd look out the window. Oh, we're in Germany. We're in Austria. We're in Switzerland. We're, you know, and all that international travel, and I did a lot, and in the 30s, it was always still fun. You know, in the 40s, I, you know, this is so, ooh, this is, this is, this is tough. My 50s, I have to travel business class, and it's still miserable. <laughs> I cannot. There's no way I could. I've seen too much. I, and I just now, just going out the door, I just go, Laura, please, you know. And yet, there's calling, and I love, there's people in Europe that I love and, and all that, but I, it's just so rigorous, so difficult. Violence, please, 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 please. <laughs> but it is. It, things just change. They, they will never fulfill. At some point, you'll come to an end of it, and God is fulfilling. And then eventually, it was to have always a powerful effect on all the nations. So, number one, we looked at a couple weeks ago, the salvation will come to the earth and will come from the Jews. You remember the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He was very succinct. He said, woman, salvation is from the Jews because she was talking about her different things and all that. I'm just telling you, woman, salvation is from the Jews. Why? Because Jesus was Jewish. All the promises, all the covenants, all the prophetic words were given to the Jews to mediate to the nations. Again, as we saw in Psalm 96, well in advance of Jesus, it was always to be taken to the ends of the earth. Still, something that many of my Friends who are Jewish, either Orthodox, Reformed, or conservative, in whatever camp they may find themselves, still struggle with the idea of being a light to the nations. It's more about their Jewish ethnicity and their beliefs, and no, they were always called to be a light to the nations. And so, as we're, you know, we look at Israel College of the Bible and all of our Jewish friends and Arab friends in the Middle East who love Jesus and are trying to export that and be that light to the nations as part of kind of the DNA, a little bit, of our church here at Church at the Red Door that we recognize that now we too are part of this new nation that we talked about last week. So it's not just about that. By the way, let me just tell you this quick story, you know. Uh, This is something you'll probably come up against your friends because it always leads to pluralism, and I'll explain what that means. So uh, I met a a precious woman, and I just had an encounter with her. Not a long encounter, but an encounter and uh, maybe half an hour. It was just basically for me, Lord, what do you want in this conversation? So for me, I just asked questions. I didn't get to talk a whole lot, but I did ask questions. And come to find out, if you know anything about Spanish history at all, uh, with the Spanish Civil War, which was from 1936 to 1939, there was a massive upheaval. And they went into what became a dictatorship. And if you know anything about that, uh, it was a, It was a dark time, uh, and yet for some it was a great a time of exploitation and, and great things. It was a dictatorship, obviously uh, with Franco, Francisco Franco who'd kind of been a military guy he'd been deported to the Canary Islands, which is kind of off the coast of the African continent in the Northwest and uh, then he had to be, during the Civil War, he came back in with this nationalist party and that was actually aided by, if you can imagine, Mussolini and his Italian fascism, as well as Hitler. And they actually helped him, the Nazis helped him get back in to kind of plan, even though they stayed somewhat neutral during World War II. That's what started Franco's uh, long reign as a dictator, and it was a fascist state. And with that, they had partnered uh, with uh, the church. At that time, the Roman Catholic Church was part of this as well. Um, and there were many other things that happened during that particular time in history. I'm not saying by any means we have many Catholics among us, but some of the Catholics were complicit in the higher rankings uh, with this dictatorship for a long time and were actually part of the, the helping the secret police and the kind of the state that existed during that time. And it was an extreme challenge. And this woman had uh, run, and she had run from her father, who is still living and was part of the upper echelons of, of this dictatorship, and still wanted this, this guy to be resurrected. Now, when, uh, when Franco died, he, he actually turned it over uh, to the next guy, Juan Carlos I, assuming that he would take on this, uh, you know, continue this government as it was so entrenched in his dictatorship, and he didn't. He actually, just within two days on November 22nd, uh, of 1975, just within two days of the death, he actually reinstituted political parties, and it's what we have to this day. Spanish politics is still a little crazy sometimes, but still a representative democracy, at least uh, from the outside looking in. And and so that's a little bit of the history. But her father was uh, a real wealthy guy and part of this upper echelon within this dictatorship, and he loved fascism, still does. And she told me he wore so many masks. Now, for her, in trying to talk to her about this, just I just started talking to her about Jesus. I just did. It was just an open opportunity. And she was just absolutely, no, do not talk to me. I'm not going to have any conversation with you about this. We're not going to go any further. And so I knew there had to be something in her history. and said, well, tell me your story. And then all this uh, began to emerge. And she uh, said, she said, I hate my father. I absolutely hate my father. I don't want anything to do with my father. And we've run from him, uh, a very powerful, very wealthy family. And uh, now she was uh, out on this island uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean, probably about, interestingly enough, about what where Jonah was headed to Tarshish, which was on the coast of Spain, probably would have camped maybe a night on this particular island. Maybe this is the island of running. I don't know. And she brought her own kids and, and and don't want her father to know where she is. And she's completely been cut off from not only just her family but also a lot of the finances and everything else. And this was the conversation. This would what happens sometimes. But here's the interesting thing. She used to say, I just couldn't imagine. You know, she grew up and I would ask the nuns and say, I don't believe in this God of the Jews. This is this little tribe, you know, out in the middle. And let me tell you something, this woman was very intelligent, knew multiple languages. She goes, oh, how can you believe in this God of the Jews? What about the God of the Gentiles? What about the God of the nations and all this other thing? This is just one little God out of all the gods. Why should I do this? And the nuns wouldn't give her an answer and she'd just stomp her feet. Boy, she's a powerful, she was, she was a strong-willed woman who I really, really care for. And I hope I get a chance to go see her again one day soon. But that was the essence of it. And then I asked her, what did she believe? What did she think about reality? What did she, how did she posit God? And then it got a little bit, um, I don't know, it became a little opaque. She wasn't willing to say that there was no power out there. On one hand, she would say there's no God. On the other hand, she would say there's some spiritual power out there or some spiritual consciousness out there or something like that. But it really became what we would call pluralism. In other words, everybody has maybe just a little touch, a little taste of what it is to understand God. I just find that completely implausible because they're all in direct conflict with one another. Do you have an eternal soul, Hindus? Yes, Buddhists say no. Do you, you know, is there a multiplicity of gods or is there one God that was responsible for creation? Are we created in God's image or are we just a product of of chaos? I mean, those are questions that religion's suffer with? Well, they're just all the best expression. But what you're saying when you say that is ultimately you're saying we see it as it really is. The pluralist, without giving any, any support for his or her position, what they're actually saying is we see the truth. And the truth is there's a God, but nobody really understands him except for us, the pluralists, right? So it's a weak argument. But you do understand that What we are mediating here is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was always the God of the entire earth. That's why Psalm 96 is so important. Can you see that? Bless the Lord and ascribe greatness to him. All the nations, all the people, all the goyim and the Israelites, everybody, ascribe to him the greatness that is due him. Jesus then comes on the scene in Colossians chapter 1. What do we get? He is... Everything, everything was created by him and for him and nothing's been created that hasn't been created through him. That's Jesus. That's an unbelievable statement. Did the prophet see that? That's what we also saw a few weeks ago in Matthew 21. Said it's going to, this, this whole kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. He was talking to the religious Jews of his day. Does that mean God was done with the Jews You haven't seen this go back you can listen to it first week in September let's be clear he wasn't taken away from the Jews he was taken away from the religious Jews that thought they had a handle on it had a corner on the market but we must go back to the prophets why Jesus went back to the prophets Psalm 118 is what he quotes in Matthew 21 he quotes this the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone this came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes Jesus quoted Psalm 118. A thousand years before the time of Jesus, Jesus was claiming to be the cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? Well, I don't know a whole lot about building, but from what I've read, a cornerstone sets everything. I don't know if that's true in modern building or not. I don't know how that works, but certainly back in ancient times, the cornerstone was the... the, All the weight was borne by the cornerstone, and you would set the cornerstone, and then that would set the dimensions and the location and everything. Everything about the house would be determined by the cornerstone. It was the key piece of the foundation. And now Jesus is claiming indirectly but claiming very clearly to be the cornerstone. Now if you remember if if you've been around for a while I did a whole series on the rock and that Jesus was the rock and he was the rock that followed them in the wilderness and all this language that you get from the prophets written well in advance of Jesus and now you get this also Isaiah 28 verse 16. Isaiah 28 verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Again, Isaiah is writing about 700 years before the time of Jesus. He says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone. Was Jesus tested? Absolutely. A costly cornerstone. Was Jesus' death costly? You better believe it was. For the foundation firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Isaiah, 700 years before, was looking forward and again, like the psalmist, seeing a cornerstone. And whoever's going to believe in that cornerstone, their whole life's going to be set. He's the foundation firmly placed and God's going to set and place this cornerstone right there in Zion, which is Jerusalem. It's exactly what happened 700 years later. Acts chapter 4, this was a sermon Peter preaches, okay, upon their release from jail. It says, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health, okay? Now let's keep reading. He is the what? Stone which was rejected by you the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. And then verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now right there the pluralist says, "Oh, wait a minute." No other name? Well, that's just your God of the Jews. That's just your, you know, the Messiah whose Christians claim it, but Jews don't You know, you get all that. Let me be clear. The word could not be more clear. I am unapologetic about this. Jesus changed my life. Jesus said very clearly, apart from me, you can do nothing I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes unto the Father, that's God, Yahweh, except through me. Why? Because He's the cornerstone. Now, if that's not true, this is absurd. In fact, our meeting here is quite absurd. We're wasting our time, wasting our money, and wasting our efforts unless He was, in fact, the cornerstone whom all the prophets had seen. Now, we take this even one step further. In fact, Isaiah 8, we didn't even allude to, and I won't. I'll allude to it, but we won't go there. Isaiah 8 says there's this this stone that's going to be stumbled over and rejected. So this cornerstone that the prophets are somehow opaquely seen into the future, somehow there'll be a stone there. And most of Israel, most of God's chosen people to mediate the covenant, most of them will stumble over it and reject it. This was, again, 700 years in advance of Jesus. It's an amazing story. Now Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll kind of bring this to a head here. It's important that you see that this proclamation was to start with the Jews but eventually be adopted around the entirety of the earth, forming a new nation comprised of Jews and Gentiles, what Paul is going to refer to, although I'm not going to go there, but I think it's verse 14 or 15 in Ephesians 2, as the one new man. In other words, we have Jewish friends here and we have you know, ethnically Jewish who follow Jesus and we have ethnically non-Jews of which I am one following Jesus. We are, according to Paul, now one new man. We're just one new individual. It's powerful to think about. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, let's listen to his language here. It says, "'So then you are no longer,' speaking to the goyim or the nations, "'you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household.'" Said, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the what? Cornerstone. He was what the He was Isaiah was seeing it, the Psalmist was seeing it. How's it gonna go to the ends of the earth? Well, it's gonna start with a cornerstone, it's gonna build a house. And then in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then finally, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What's Paul saying here? You're one new man. This is the new nation. It's not that it's going to be taken away from the Jews and given to give them, the Gentiles, it's going to be taken away from the religious Jews who'd rejected Jesus, given it to the religious Jews who had embraced Jesus Matthew, Luke, John, Peter. All these guys, right? It's going to be given to you and then you're going to take it to the nations and then the nations and you together are going to form this new kind of humanity, this new nation, this people group, the one new man, the one new nation that share the same attitudes and culture and not just culture, that's not even the right word. The whole, the whole DNA, your whole purpose for living, the way in which you treat one another this is, in fact, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It's going to be ruled by a whole other ethos. You're going to be trying to steal from one another, who can get the best off one another. You're going to lay down your life to serve one another. Now, do you want to be part of a community like that? Well, until Jesus comes back, we'll never have a perfect community, but we can have a community that has the intention to look like that. And when I come here, I feel that. I feel your prayers. I feel your love, you know. Right before the service, I went up in the mills. Stacey and Mike were up there just up in that room just praying about you, praying about you as a body, praying about the service, praying about, then I go down here and there's there's a Herman serving. Then I go back in the child and then people are sitting, Laney, and and they're setting up and all the, the people just, there's a lot of activity going on here for one purpose. Ascribe to the Lord the greatness that is due him. Is he worthy of that? He is. He is, and that's why we're here. So what does this new nation look like? Well, Peter even took off on this theme. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Peter picked up on this exact theme. He said, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, we're not like that anymore. We're different kinds of people. We're different people than that. I'll make a mistake, I'll slander someone, and then I'll, the Holy Spirit will lead me, and then I'll go and I'll ask them to forgive me. or I'll, But there's an ethos here. We're not perfect people, but we are striving towards becoming like the one who saved us. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. Can I say that again? Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. I met, I met a sweet woman I, out by the water fountain out here a minute ago, uh, that I haven't met, and they've been coming for a few weeks. And she said, Oh, yeah, we've never really, really opened a Bible before, but we're going to this Bible study, and then we're going to this Bible study. Can I just tell her uh, anonymously, although now in front of all of you, just keep longing for the pure milk of the word? You're falling right into what Peter had said. Long for it, like newborn babies. Why? So that you may grow in respect to the salvation that's already happened just because you believed in Jesus. The Bible says, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You don't do this to be saved. You do this, what? Because you're saved. You did nothing for your salvation. Nothing. I went through catechism. I went through this. I went through this Bible class. I went through that. I. I became a member of Church at the Red Door. Well, number one, we don't even have membership here. You're just part of us when you come, you know? I did this. I, I took communion. I, I went through that. I, I was born this way. I was, my parents were, my grandparents. No, 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 no. You just do it because you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and His resurrection, vicariously done in your place. He took the beating for you and me. We believe that. And then we want to grow in our new family. And so we long for the pure milk of the Word. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, well, first of all, have you tasted the good news of the Word? And we're going to get into this more specifically in weeks to come. If we're going to talk about how do we really take a next level by being part of the Great Commission, we're going to have to understand what really is our message? What are we really saying and what are we not saying? I'm going to tackle that in weeks to come. Some of you would say, well, it's about just Jesus and 1 Corinthians 15 and him being dead, buried, and resurrected. That's true, but we're going to even go into more detail. I want to equip you to be able to have a conversation in a 21st century environment that does not have to be cringeworthy. Where you go and just go, well, oh, you know, uh, you know, and then you feel terrible. Just, it's, it's very simple. There's one God, and he's revealed himself in Jesus. And how you communicate that can be very challenging. And sometimes, well... People aren't going to like it, and that's okay, too, as long as you do it in gentleness and kindness. And then here we go. Are you ready? Verse 4. And coming to him, that's to Jesus, as a living stone. So G- Jesus himself is the cornerstone. All the prophets saw it. The New Testament guy said, "Nah, he's a living stone. He's the cornerstone. But now you're a living stone. That's what Peter, now this is, an, It takes a lot of audacity to say this. But you're a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Still referring to Jesus. And you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. What's Peter saying here? You're part of the priesthood. What's a priest? It's a mediator. It's someone who helps people get to God to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus, for this is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. (laughs) He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone." So again, now Peter is using this cornerstone idea. He's using the same language. He just he just goes back. He quotes again what we did earlier, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. And he says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you little living stones, you. Oh, yeah. And if you're not, you can be one today. I don't know if I'm a living stone. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. God forbid we would make it any more complicated than that. He said, but you're a chosen race, you little living stones. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim. Why are you a living stone? So that you may proclaim. So that you may proclaim. Why are you a living stone? Why are you part of this foundation of which Christ is the cornerstone? So that. You may proclaim your personal testimony. Well, yes, you can do that. But primarily, the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, what we're doing with the Great Commission, and you don't have to actually proclaim verbally. You might be a promoter. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Promoting and proclaiming, it's all just one pot of proclamation that there is a God And he's revealed himself in Jesus and he is awesome and everything's been created by him and for him everything everything will be everything will be summed up in Christ in the end and he's also the judge you might want to get to know him that's what we're saying the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light for you once were not a people you weren't part of a crowd like this, not to suggest all of us are. Here, some of you may be, again, kicking the tires. That's okay. Just keep coming. We'll love you, and, but we will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. You once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and as strangers to abstain from, everly, from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. In other words, don't just allow other idolatrous nonsense to take top billing in your life. doesn't mean you can't enjoy a beautiful dinner or a wonderful vacation or even a new car. It doesn't mean any of that. All that's, That is not what this is talking about. Don't let anything take the number one place, the seat of the throne in your heart other than God through his son, Jesus. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, those who don't know God at all, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, and we'll talk about this later too, glorify God. One of the things we do to proclaim or promote the gospel is we actually just do good stuff. I mean, I could dress that up in all kinds of theological language and all that's so beautiful. Look, you just go out, you feed the poor, you care about them, you know, you go with the ranch to go out to the homeless people living among the trees and you give them blankets and you care for them and you love them and you give them a hug and, and, and same thing because they're just as destitute of people behind some of the walls of these country clubs in this valley, of which we have 130 golf courses and they are just as poor and downtrodden spiritually as anybody living under a tree and you proclaim and promote the very glory of God. Why? because he is worthy of that. It's who he is. Can you imagine being next to somebody? I, I don't know if you saw this, and I know it got some kind of reviews that were maybe it was not portrayed properly, but I, I saw it on the plane coming home, the Green Book. Are you familiar with that at all? It was about the extraordinary, extraordinary gentleman. I can't remember his actual name, but the extraordinary Uh, African-American gentleman who was one of the most renowned pianists of his time and it was back in the late 50s early 60s he lived above Carnegie Hall but he decided given all the racism in the south still we were mired in a bunch of absurdity Uh, and the church was even involved in this you know stuff too it's just silliness it was just uh, it was beyond silliness it was evil I mean, racism at its very core de- defies the fact that we're all created in the image of God. That alone, Genesis 1 helps us understand, Genesis one twenty-six that we are all created equally in God's sight. And yet, through time memorial, we always have, you know, racism. There's racism in Europe now. There's racism, you know, whether it's in Africa or whether it, wherever it is. Whether, wherever you find people, you're going to find racism. But he decided he wanted to take this tour down, and they obviously had to drive and play in this trio, and he got a guy from the Bronx, man, I got, you know, Italian, and, and he, was a, he was an enforcer guy, and he basically was schooling him in how to actually, you know, the, the, the black gentleman was schooling the white Italian guy in how to, how, dictation, and he didn't even know what dictation was and how to write a letter home to his wife. And he'd write a letter home to his wife and say, yeah, I'm here and it's very good. And, you know, and this hotel is nice. Okay, hug the kids. You know, that's about, that's all he could do. And he was helping him craft some letters to his wife. I really, really enjoyed the movie. But at that one point, this white kind of mafioso looking guy who's his driver there to protect him in the south against all the atrocities that would, you know, unfold on this tour. He was there and he heard him play and he just he was taken back by it. He just couldn't imagine he w- he had the privilege to drive this guy and yet he was a racist. But now all of a sudden he's seeing the excellence of the guy's with and begins to see him in a t- different light and then they'll go somewhere and there were a number of scenes where all of a sudden he's being treated in ways in the south that you have to see the movie but was treated in horrific ways and he's like don't you understand who you're dealing with don't you and he completely flipped because he saw the excellence of the guy that he was hanging out with. See, if you're not someone who's interested in the Great Commission, you don't know Jesus well enough. You don't know who you're driving with in the car. Amen. You just have to say. And I've experienced this. I had a, a sweet man up until this summer I was with. one of They say the top developers in the entire world, a guy by the name Gerald Hines, and I was with him and I remember a story that we were in Aspen and you remember this, uh, Robert Wagner, the actner, actor Robert Wagner, some of the young people remember him better in some silly roles. But as he he was married to what was her name? Oh, you know, so, you know, Robert Wagner and so Robert Wagner and was we were going to play and there was Mr. Hines, who is, you know, billionaire over, I mean, just one of the most extraordinary guys and yet diminutive in stature. And very humble and just very, and always asks questions of others and never, ever talks about himself, never. And I've been with, I was with him for 20 years, S- lived in his home, spent time with him. I mean, just, er, just know the whole family, the whole thing and became very close. And yet here we are with Robert Wagner and no offense if you're a Robert Wagner fan and have made, you know, Robert, if you ever watch this, so I'm sure you won't on live stream, then I apologize. But you don't know who you were with. And so we started playing golf, and he was not very nice. He was just telling stories all about himself and his acting and this and that and blah, 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 and he played about three holes, and he just didn't want to be with this old man, you know. And he took off and faked a phone call. I know what a fake phone call looks like. On the golf course, I got to go and blah, blah, blah. And he, he takes off and never knew who he was with. And I wanted to stand up and go. And then when he left, uh, Mr. Hines said, now, now, who was that gentleman? <laughs> he had no idea who Robert Wagner was. I said, Well, he acts and, you know, anyway. And so, but I just wanted to stand up and trumpet. I said, don't you realize? I mean, there are people that, I mean, this guy is a living legend. He's already in the textbooks. He said, I wanted to tell Robert Wagner this. There was something innate in me. Do you know Jesus enough to where you cannot contain yourself? You don't need to read Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. You don't even need to do that. It's already so, do you know Jesus? Why? Because I'm so religious and if I don't, commit the great, you know, I just have to be part of this religious ceremony that all good Christians. I tell people about Jesus because I can't wait to tell them about Jesus. He's a creator of all things. He died. He rose again. Man, mean, he, he announced the coming of a new kingdom. We don't have to live like the animals that we were acting like. We were creating the image of God and he's gonna give us open access back to the Father. Based upon zero effort other than his effort on our behalf, just believe. Now, who don't, how can you keep that to yourself? Now, if you're not a proclaimer and you're just a promoter, maybe you're just, you know, you're playing a role. But you're somehow playing in a role in whatever this vision is of CRD that we want to reach people. We're going to talk about that more in the months to come really going to get into it because we're not going to be here forever. I'll just give you a little foretaste. There's some good things happening. Some things are going to, this thing's going to roll. This vision's going to go. And we're not going to, we've been here for three years. It's been a glorious three years. We're coming up on our third anniversary, but we can't, we can't grow anymore. And so we're, but there's, there's a purpose in it, not just so we can have a bigger church. I I couldn't care less about a bigger, I want an effective church. I want a loving church that cares about people. Because we're such nice people, we cannot keep our mouths shut. We can't. Jesus is just too good. He is worthy. That's my introduction, and this is my close. Now I'm going to have you worship to this song. I I knew that this this is... I love this song. I love this song. He is worthy. And then I'm going to ask at the conclusion of the song, I'm going to ask Pastor Paul to come up and explain how we do communion, okay? You're going to be totally invited to do communion. But we ask you not to do communion if you don't yet believe in Jesus. I mean, it's going to be simple as that. I mean, that's why we always kind of struggle. We used to go upstairs. Now we're doing it downstairs. You don't believe in Jesus yet. You're, stay with us. Watch us be involved in this beautiful little ceremony that we're going to have. But, and it's not until you believe in Jesus that you should partake, partake in communion, okay? So we'll talk about that. But in the meantime, is he worthy? Yes. He, oh, man, if you don't know that yet, we want you to know that. My heart bleeds for this. So in light of that, let's think about the words to this song and worship. Would you mind standing as we sing this last song together? Let's, let's, let's sing.